Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Uh, my name is L.A. I'm recovering from Lost, and I love hearing everyone's precious, unique accent. And uh, just uh, this is an amazing gathering of the United Nations. I hope we're united. And uh, unity is something that's precious to us and um, something that always escaped me because I never felt united with anyone when I was in my disease. I always, we would go around the room and we'd hear, you know, 50 names and I'd think, okay, I'm different from this person this way or I don't relate to this person that way. And I didn't feel that way going around the room today. I feel connected to all of you and uh, that's uh, one of the, benefits or the miracles of the program. So Luke asked me what my topic might be, and I chose this topic, just the beginning, because about uh, almost two weeks ago now, Iris K. passed away. Many of you know that Iris was, for many years, Roy's wife. She was his second wife. Mm -hmm. But she is the wife that he talks about throughout the white book. And he talks about her in these pages, just the beginning, over and over again. It's, it's all about his dysfunctional relationship with her, non-relationship with her. And then what happens to him as he works his program and as they work through all of the, the bumps and the bruises the fights, the uh, brinksmanship in the marriage, and where they wound up. For those of us who were fortunate enough to be around in 2007, that was the last time that Roy and Iris came to an international convention together and addressed the convention. Well, Roy did. And... um, that was a very historic convention for SA for many reasons. It was in Baltimore, Maryland. Somebody is here, I think, As- Asa from, is from Baltimore. It wasn't in Baltimore. It was in uh, Adelphi, Maryland, which is at the University of Maryland. And partly because of the way it was set up, it was at the University of Maryland. So we had an auditorium, which we normally don't do in a hotel. And all of the seats faced the stage. And we thought we would give Roy the opportunity to address the whole fellowship. And there were no breakout meetings during that time. It was just Roy. So he spoke to 450 or 500 of us. And um, of course, uh, Iris was not at the meeting, but Roy talked about lust. And he talked about how our problem was not acting out that was a, a 
manifestation of our problem, a reflection of our, our deeper problem. Now, even lust is not the deepest problem, but that it lust is far deeper, deeper rooted, and that the acting out was ultimately where it would lead us. And at the end of that session, if you've never heard the recording, and it is available through these tapes, he chops off seven years of his sobriety in front of a whole fellowship to everybody's shock. And the reason he did that is because he realized that during one of those episodes that he describes in one of his writings, I think it's the post office scene, he drank in lust and he knew it, but he didn't change his date and he didn't even think to change his date. But he came ready to uh, Delphi, Maryland, knowing that in and in all rigorous honesty, he needed to do that. <clears throat> and it got many of the people in the auditorium all stirred up. And I think a number of people have changed their data as a result. Because we are finally understanding then and even now more so that our problem does not have to end with having sex with anyone, having sex with ourselves. And I think... Uh, the women in the program tend to understand this more than us men, not universally, but I think that's the tendency. And that if you look on page 43 of the white book, there are 10 points about what it says lust is. And quite a number of them really have nothing to do with sex, but they have to do with the fantasy. And Roy didn't have sex that day. He didn't masturbate that day that he, he changed his date back to. But he was caught in lust. And some of these say not being able to say no. Attraction only to beautiful people. Being addicted to the partner as I would be to a drug. And we'll get to that again when I return to the subject of virus. Losing my identity in the partner. Obsession with the romantic, going for the chemistry, and the desire to make the other person lust. You know, I did not get this lust thing when I first came into the program. And by the way, I came in in 1989, uh, desperate, and uh, thought I had lost my mind. I thought this is what happened to me was what they say when they say people, this person cracked up because I was stuck in my apartment. I couldn't, I could barely speak. I could barely get off the couch. I couldn't work. I get, couldn't feed myself. And I just, I, I had a break, mental break. <clears throat> well, um, when I would read the literature in the, in the meetings and the white book had come out that year and we would read all about lust, I would think, yeah, okay. You know, but I didn't really understand that lust really was not sex and that this program was not about trying to avoid having some kind of sexual encounter or sexual behavior or sexual release. I could be drunk as a skunk and have nothing to do with touching myself or having some kind of orgasm or anything like that. And Roy brought this to the fore that weekend in 2017 in July, in 2007 in July. Why am I bringing all this up? Because as he 
went deeper into his recovery and deeper into his understanding of how, of what the nature of his true problem was, he delved into the effects of being in lust, even though he was not acting out. And this, these six pages are about that, just the beginning. And he describes himself as dry, like an alcoholic would be dry. That he had not, he was not changing on the inside. He was not emotionally changing. And Iris was the object of this. And uh, the more I read this, this section here in particular, but all throughout the book, she really is a hero. She's a hero of SA. She wasn't in the program. She wasn't even in Essanon. But she put up with so much. She did not leave him. She stayed with him. And she stayed with all of his paces, his ups, his downs, his slamming the door, his kicking the cat, his yelling at the kid, yelling at her, blaming her for things. It's, he's very honest about himself in, this, in these six pages. It's painful to read it. But back in uh, Adelphi, Maryland, after the convention ended in 2007, Roy and Iris agreed to go across the street to a church and to meet with us informally. And there were a couple of hundred people in this room. It was an unforgettable meeting. It was the two of them just sitting in front of us, just being them, holding hands and telling their story. And it was a story of, <clears throat> of love rediscovered or maybe discovered for the first time. And when they told the story, especially Roy, he didn't talk about it with the horror that he describes here. He talks about it as part of his process. And honestly, I never noticed these words until I just was reading for this meeting here, but it's something I think all of us know intuitively. And I think uh, to me speaks about essay just about more than anything else. It's on page 153 of the white book in English, toward the bottom. It's the second to the last paragraph. He says, somewhere along the line, I came to, and here are the words, a commitment of permanency with my wife. A commitment of permanency. If somebody had told me, you will come to a commitment of permanency with anything when I first came in here, I would have run for the hills. I was so afraid of committing to any, I was afraid of committing to the to sobriety, to this program, to you all, to doing anything in a sustained way to the steps, let alone being trapped in a relationship where she was wrong on everything, apparently, according to him. But that is our sobriety definition, isn't it? That's what makes us different. Now, it doesn't mean people don't break up, their marriages don't break up, but there is something extra permanent about a marriage between a man and a woman. 
the commitment that's made there. And I, as a sexaholic, was always looking for the escape hatch. Any situation I got into, probably because I was lying to somebody and I was afraid of getting caught, I always knew how I'd escape, what story I would tell, what back exit I would find, something to get me out of the situation. And all of a sudden now, after this whole story he's telling, he came to a, per a commitment of permanency. And that's when things started to change for him. And when he talks about her in the next paragraph, instead of those dismal Sunday morning talks, we were starting to talk and touch as friends. I had just begun to glimpse my wife as an individual, had begun to see the limitless depth of what was in there, a person, unique, vulnerable, human. God was there. How many spouses would love to hear their spouse talk about them this way? I would, I would guess everyone. Very few probably hear them being talked about with this, with this language. And so we sat there watching Roy and Iris holding hands, and you knew that that commitment to permanency was right before us and that he had discovered her and was cherishing her in front of the whole fellowship. This man who was so broken, who had such a horrendous story of sexaholism, had found this. He'd found the, the essence of his wife. And she waited around long enough for him to discover it. She had her faith, not in him, but she had her own faith in the God of her understanding that somehow if she stuck it out, if she had her own commitment to permanency, this would work out. And so I'm, I'm very, very moved by Roy's honesty in these pages, and especially the honesty that he has, which he had in Adelphi, Maryland, and he has here, where he says on the top of page 152, mere sobriety, even lengthy sobriety, hadn't healed me or the marriage, exclamation point. So he knew we can be, as drunk as an alcoholic can be drunk, who just is not drinking, but is not sober either. And this is what he was. He would blow up. He would have temper tantrums, blaming everyone right and left. And he did this sober, quote unquote, sober. So it really helps me to think about, well, when I evaluate sobriety, including my own, what does that actually mean? Sobriety for me does not mean not acting out. That's a technical definition. And sometimes I hear, even hear people in meetings say, you know, that I'm technically sober such and such an amount of time, as though that makes any difference in the context of this story or the story of emotional growth, the story of real healing. It doesn't. And so I can be easily tricked into thinking, ah, oh, listen to that date. Wow. But he's the first one to say, that's not it. And so he, as he moved along in his, in his later years, in 2007, was just two years before he passed away, he was looking for the real thing. He was looking for the real connection with fellows. He would call people up and say, I just want to have some fellowship. Can you pray with me? 
and he wanted the fellowship with his wife. He found it with his son. And he wanted that kind of a, an intimate, honest, un, unvarnished, unedited relationship with God. And I believe he was close to finding it when he passed on to the next world. So I, I, I know for myself, and I think pretty much everyone, I mean, we're still following Roy's sobriety. It was always his sobriety that was going before us. And we're in this program, and God happened to choose him to be the one going before, much like Bill W. and, and, and others, Roseanne and OA. Um, they were the ones who were chosen to be the pioneers. And, um, and I'm grateful that Iris had the mental or, and emotional awareness that the things she was getting blamed for were not hers. And she finally, she would hand it to him sometimes. She was a very gentle soul, but she would give it to him when she really needed to. And he, at least, even though he hated it and he would, you know, uh, make it clear that he was very unhappy, he had the commitment to permanency. And that commitment to permanency is the reason we're all here, because it, it was able to sustain through what must have been very difficult times during the sobriety definition arguments and, you know, wars, if you want to call them, they're still going on. Um, but he never gave up. Roy never gave up when there are plenty of reasons, you know, to say, look, you know, we don't have unity in this fellowship. Uh, what are we doing? Is this really worth it? Maybe we should just all go to one of the other as fellowships. But all of us on this meeting are, are here for a reason, because this is where we found recovery. This is what spoke to our hearts. And when I look back and maybe, you know, one day we'll, we'll hope that there's a biography written about Roy, maybe about Iris. Uh, we'll find out that God also chose her to be in a marriage with him, to, to stay in that marriage and that commitment when they were, she had every reason in the world to leave and to leave with the kid, this one child. And so I'm just grateful. I find myself very grateful for her life. Uh, she, she came to many of the conventions. She was there, as you probably know, during the, the um, uh, Dear Abby letters when they had 800, 1,000 letters that would just come flooding in, and they answered every one of them by hand, she and Roy together in that garage, which was the first central office on Roy's property. So I am uh, I'm filled with gratitude, but I'm also realizing that, you know, my sobriety is just not also a length of sobriety. My sobriety is the quality of my sobriety, and it is about lust sobriety. And if I think that I'm still lusting, and I'm calling myself sober because I need the sobriety date. Maybe I can go back. You know, and I'm, I'm a person that my sobriety is 11 years after I first came into the program. So I've relapsed survivor several times over. And, um, you know, I, I hit behind my sobriety date too. I, I had 19 months of sobriety at one point and I was going, I was starting to go back to adult bookstores. 
and calling myself sober because I said, okay, well, I, I can't touch anything and I can't turn the uh, cover of a magazine open. I can't help it, you know, what's ever on the cover. I, I didn't put it there, but I'm not going to open anything and I'm not going to touch anyone or do anything. And uh, it was one of the worst periods of my life because I knew I was lying to myself. I couldn't admit it. And I had to keep up this facade for my own sake. I don't, I'm sure if I, if I got bothered to tell anybody the truth, everybody was like, boy, this guy is really not well. So um, I'm glad that, that Roy is, was willing to tell us the story about how hard this was for him to finally get to the place where he needed to look at himself and to look past his own anger at this woman and to discover this wonderful human being. And um, I think the Essanons really could tell pages and pages, chapters and chapters of this type of story on the receiving end. Lee, you have five minutes left. Oh, thank you, Natalie. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Um, you know, uh, Emer, the European region, uh, thanks to Luke, actually, who started it. I think it was Luke. Um, has a monthly married speakers meeting and people get on there and they talk about their story, but they also talk about their marriage and they talk about their own equivalent of this process of just the beginning, the beginning of actually realizing you are not married to a doll or a, a, an object to be used and then tossed out. You're in a commitment to permanency. And if that's true, then can you move to fully embrace this person? And I'm so delighted there are so many women on this meeting tonight because we men, now, now we're all sexaholics, that's why we're here, but I think men in particular uh, tend to, especially when we're so caught up in ourselves, we don't see in meetings, we don't see the women, especially if there are very few of them. Now on this meeting, there are lots of you. And so, I'm delighted that we can see you and you're here and you're, you're numerous, but uh, we have an event coming up on Saturday that Luke, I think is going to show your screen called supporting women in SA. And I bring this up because the first topic is being the only woman in my meeting, in my city, in my country. And this is an acute topic because many women are alone, even in SA, they come in hoping to join a fellowship and they end up, as sexaholics feeling alone. And we, we men, we don't intend to do this. I don't think we mean to do it, but we're so caught up in ourselves that we cannot, sometimes we don't even see there was a woman there. And so this is what we're trying to bring to the fore because we need unity. And you know, I'm also in OA and there are mostly women in OA. And I have the same issue in reverse in that fellowship. But, uh, Women are, are, are a little bit more, I find, maybe sort of aware of it, and they're, they're aware that I'm the only man. And so they just kind of, you know, just kind of treat me. Uh, I'm not invisible there. So um, I'm looking forward to this event. There's a lot of topics like this. Mostly women are going to be speaking, but it, say, it says they're open to SA men, women and men worldwide because we're about 90, 95% of this fellowship, and we're the ones that can support the women. If we don't support the women, the women are only going to support themselves and they're going to remain over here in the margins. And so 
getting back to Iris, um, Roy did not see her either. For her, for him, his wife was invisible as a character, as a human being. Her character was invisible to him. But as the years went on, he saw her. He began to delight in her. He knew she was a very sensitive soul. She was. She did her own stained glass. She she saw. She she was a a quiet, uh, gentle person, and he was not gentle with her until he could finally slow down and embrace her for all of the, the wonderful person she was. And so I think as time goes on, now that she has passed away, we're going to learn more about Iris and the role that she played in sa saving this relation, saving this fellowship because Roy kept growing because she didn't leave him. She stayed. She had that commitment to permanency. And I hope that that message, that those four words can, can be em emblazoned in my brain that I have a commitment to permanency because I left this program. I left after three years and I stayed out for eight. When I came back, I came back on my knees and that was my commitment to permanency. And I haven't left since, but I hope to God I don't because I don't know if I've got another going back out to the adult bookstores left in me. I want to stay. I want to stay with you all. I want you to know me. I want to be transparent with you. I want to keep following Roy and Iris together with you. And um, yeah, I think we have so much more to learn from their life and from one another. With that, I think I'll, I'll, I'll conclude. And if there are any questions, I'd, be, I'd love to answer any of them and uh, just get to know you all. Thanks. Why? Um, thank you very much, Alec, for sharing. Um, I'm overwhelmed right now. I wondered when you when I saw the topic just the beginning, and in the pages, I was I was really confused. Um, but that's the very end. It's the very end of the portion on the steps in the book. It's the part that's after that is you know meetings and some readings and all. We're just, it just didn't hit me like that. We're, we're just at the beginning of, uh, I just really want to thank you. This is, um, it's like the new frontier. I remember when, I believe it was at that convention at Delphi, lust is the new frontier. And people started really emphasizing lust. And I don't know. This just feels, feels like um, a cataclysmic moment, as if this is the new frontier. Thank you very much for sharing. And thank you very much for being incredibly committed to principles over personalities. Over personalities. Uh, just a comment there. Um, thank you, Nancy. Um, that whole convention was about bringing lust to the fore. And we actually held a survey uh, and most people in the convention, most sexaholics answered the survey question and the questions, but well over 70% of the people in the fellowship, but not a hundred percent. It was something like 72 or 73%. It was all published in the essay, ESSAY, uh, agreed that, if they were lusting, actively lusting, like looking at pornography but not masturbating or 
doing any of those things that were overt lusting that Roy, for which Roy changed his sobriety, they would change their sobriety date. I thought that was so heartening that so many people got it that we really, we, we're not just reading these words of, about lust, but we're assimilating it. And to Roy's credit, that's what makes essay so different that he, he captured what is really going on. I've told this story before, but I went to a meeting once in Waldorf, Maryland, it's a very distant suburb of Washington, D.C., about an hour away. And there was just a few of us, maybe five or six, and in walks late, in walks an elder gentleman, and he sits down, he goes, fellas, my name is Frank. My wife's kicking me out of the house. I'm 74 years old. She's had it with me. And we're like, oh, Frank's, you know, welcome. Hey, uh, you know, it's your first time, whatever. And he said, yeah. She says, my head is always on a swivel. And whenever we go to the restaurants, I just can't stop looking at the ladies. She's had it. She says, you're not with me. I want you out. And he was as much of a sexaholic as I was. He, they, he said they hadn't had sex in 15 years. I, I understood they probably even couldn't have sex, possibly. But he was a lustaholic. And he got it. Now, he didn't really get it. She got it, actually. He didn't really get it. He suspected something. But <clears throat> uh, that was a shocker for me, that he belonged there as much as I did. <clears throat> and um, so... I've, you know, I, that's the, the sobriety uh, definition that I've had to adopt for myself, which is that I can't actively lust. Well, if I, I can, I just don't, I shouldn't call myself sober in this program. And so that's been the saving grace for me. I think that's the only reason I'm even sober. And it's, uh, it's the easier, softer way. It never dawned on me that keeping one foot in lust and telling myself I'm sober because the definition allows me to do that technically, that I was somehow reaping a benefit from that. I was destroying my life. So anyway, that's the story of Frank. Thank you, Nancy, for that comment. I turned down my volume here. Okay. Thank you, Nancy and LA. Next one will be Lee T. Hi, my name's Lee, and I'm a real sexaholic, and thank you so much, L.I. There has never been anyone who has spoken whose uh, thinking and experience is more parallel to mine, and we're very consistent on how we approach things. Uh, just the comment I have is that commitment to permanence, for me, takes action and it needs to be a consistent action and i want to have comments uh about some other people's actions harvey challenged me about 26 28 years ago when uh i was in some sort of chaos with my relationship and he said i want you to tell her in some way every single day that you love her so about uh, that time, at that time, I began a practice of writing to her every single day before she gets up. I have a writing that affirms my love, commitment, and our marriage. 
And uh, certainly it changed the way she felt. But more importantly, it changed the way I felt. And uh, that permanence has gotten deeper and deeper and deeper over these years until we by far have the most intimate relationship we've ever had. So the question is, what are some suggestions, other suggestions for uh, maintaining the momentum of that commitment to permanence? So that's all. Thanks, Lee. I'm glad uh, we're fellow travelers on this road. You know, I can answer the question this way. Okay, I'll, I'll answer the. I'll answer with this. With this question, I was in Northern Virginia. Well, no, I was in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, I was at an event. I was at the um, uh, lawyer assistance program. They had invited somebody from. Frederick, Maryland, who was 96 years old, who had taken the train for three hours to come to this event. And his name was Richard Houck. He got sober with Bill Wilson in 2000, in 1935. And he was, however, however, you know, like 70 years sober. And they asked him, what do you attribute your longevity and your 70 years of sobriety to? And he said one word. And that's my one word in answer to you, Lee. And that word is guided. He spent that time every morning waiting for guidance. He didn't, he didn't think he had the guidance in himself. And the guidance might be different from day to day, but he knew there was one who would give him the guidance if he sought it. And that's what he, that's the way he lived his life from 1935. I don't know, I, maybe not right away, but certainly at the ripe age of 96, even to get on the train and come to this program where people were lined up, you know, you know, dozens of people just to speak to this guy, this, this, you know, this relic, this guy who was, you know, for him, Bill Wilson was just another bonus. And as well, he should have been. That's always what Roy wanted to be. But we're talking contemporary of Bill Wilson's in the year 2005 or seven, whatever it was that year. So um, I just like to say that, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question, but I know one that does. And um, I, I live, try to live. I don't always live, but I try to live by the prompting of God to, to, to speak or not speak, you know, that restraint of pen and tongue. I, I rely on God to keep me on the straight and narrow, and, but to speak when, when something needs to be spoken. Um, we do take the actions of love and essay, you're right. Um, but even then, the prompting to take that action, I think if it comes from that guidance, I'm never going to go wrong. And the person is going to know it as opposed to what I did the first time I tried to make an amends to my mother where I kind of just did it pro forma. I drove all the way up to Boston from Washington, D.C., where I got sober. And we sat there, and I kind of did my dutiful ninth step. But it, she knew that I really hadn't changed much. But I did it because the book told me. But it wasn't from the heart. 
But later in 2005, when I made the heartfelt amends, because I knew it's something, the change had happened in me, just like the change had happened in Roy. She knew. And she was changed. She was moved. From that day until the day she died eight years later, we didn't have, it was only love. It went from dramatically from hostility and resentment and all of those things into love. It's a longer story there, but so that's my, that's my uh, uh, guidance there. <laughs> that's my guidance about how to answer your question. Claire is having Thank Thank you, Lee. I don't know if anybody is seeing that, Natalie. Yeah. Claire yeah, has a hand. So. Yeah, I know. I wanted to let you finish. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, Claire. Hi, I'm Claire, created in the image of God, grateful to be recovering. Sexaholic. Um, LA, thank you. Thank you so much for your share. Um, when you started speaking, I thought, so you're going to talk about Roy and Iris? Like, how is that going to like bring out your recovery? And it's so much. You, you brought out so many things by what you shared, showed what was important to you and what, what changed you and how you related to everything. And I was very inspired by what you said. Um, thank you. I want to say that I'm one of those women who's been sitting in the rooms for close to 19 years, often the only woman in the room. Um, and it was, it's been very, it was very hard for me, but I am very grateful to the fellowship because people realized very quickly that I was serious about recovery. And um, you may have heard me use this expression before, but I really became one of the guys and, um, and I definitely feel a part of the fellowship um, and I'm very, very grateful um, for that because I have gained so, so much in recovery and from the fellowship. Um, so thank you to everybody. Thank you so much, Claire. Uh, I, had, I don't think I put it in these words before, but women who have stuck it out and didn't run when they came in horror and saw they were the only ones or the only ones in the meeting or in the city, or you're heroes. You're essay heroes, just like Iris to me is an essay hero because she stuck it out. She had that commitment of permanency and you people walked in and you didn't find exactly what you were, you know, a, a really comfortable situation, but you had the commitment of permanency too. Out of desperation or whatever the reason, we don't know. We don't, we don't know why, but you're here and, um, you know, 28% of people who look at pornographic websites are women. Where are they? I don't see them in the rooms. And so I hope that we have 28% women, you know, one of these days or years, because women need this program desperately, just like we do, like we men do. But um, I hope that they find a welcome, a welcome from men as well as women. And that those days of thinking, even the need for that topic of the only woman in the meeting or the only woman in the city, it just, it, it disappears. It's going to take some effort. Like Lee said, you know, it does take that effort, but I'm hoping we all get the guidance. We all get the memo. 
And I'm hoping that all of you come on Saturday to help in this joint effort. And all you have to do is get on sexaholicsanonymous.eu. There's the rotating banner and you can find your, it's going to be interpreted into 12 languages. And um, if your English is not your first language, um, you can check all the languages or you can look on, you can't click on it on the chat, but um, just go to the uh, Emer website and you can, you can find it and you can click on the, on the language. You don't have to know English. In other words, you can do Italian, you can do French, French Spanish, German, uh, I don't know, Polish, Russian, Farsi, Dutch, Arabic, and you don't have to know a stitch of English. That's what we're hoping Emer is going to become. It's a non-English, it's a multilingual region permanently. That's also another horizon we need to, uh, boundary we need to cross, just like 28% of uh, target for women or some other number. But similarly, that we don't, we don't, we don't forget that many, most people, at least in our region, in Europe, in the European region, don't speak English and they miss out on so much just because we're not paying attention. So anyway, thanks. Thank you, Ellie. Uh, members with less than 30 days of sobriety can uh, share now as well. We still have a few minutes left, but first we have Luke to ask a question. Hi, thank you, Natalie. And thank you, Ellie, for your, for your great share. I, uh, I, saw it in the, I saw it in the, I got, I got married in uh, while being sober in SA after some years. And when I read the white book again, all of a sudden the white book opened again in a completely new way because the white book has been written by a sexaholic, but also by a married sexaholic. And a lot of his experience strengthened up a lot of his, uh, the way he looks at the world or his experiences are from the marriage also, and especially also this story. And I read again what you read. Somewhere along the line, so it's in the white book, page 153. Somewhere along the line, I came to a commitment of permanency with my wife in my heart. It meant giving up the right to run to anyone else ever one day at a time. And then I take something out of Recovery Continues, page 47. Roy also writes, for me, relationships worked against recovery. Relationships, as someone has said, are like a spectator sport whereas marriage is actually playing the game. And that's really my experience also. I had, I had several long-term uh, non-married relationships before getting sober in SA, but they were like a, a, a room with two doors, one door to come in and the other door to get out. As soon as things went bad, I could get out. And in marriage now, I still can get out, but mm -hmm. it's much tougher. And I'll wrap it up by saying I can relate a lot to Roy's share. I'm struggling really in the marriage. There is a lot of resentment, a lot of anger, a lot of hostility. And I need to hear the voice of people who have gone the way before me and who got through it and who's, who, got, who got it transformed into a better uh, life, into a better way of being together like Lee shared also. So thank you very much for, for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Okay, next one will be Alice because she cannot raise her hands. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. 
Um, thank you, LA. Um, I see you on uh, Sunday in uh, Italian convention. Um, yeah, and uh, um, I um, I would to ask uh, you uh, which is the specific uh, contribution in SA uh, of a women. Um, if you want to to speak about it. Well, I can start by saying that the, the longest sober people in SA are women, the very longest. So the fact that they were in from the beginning, and I think the greatest contribution is that they, they, they didn't come in as women. They came in as sexaholics, they stayed in as sexaholics, and they didn't leave because they were so few. To me, that's a tremendous uh, contribution because... When I, when I would be in a situation like that, I would run. And it's so easy to run because you're anonymous. And, you know, you people don't know me, especially if I don't stick around long enough for you to really know me. I can just disappear. And, you know, there's so many other people. It takes a while for people to even notice that somebody's missing. But these women, this is Catherine D. And this is Sylvia. Uh, others, Margot. Uh, They have the longest sobriety of anybody now that Roy is not with us anymore. And uh, they have kept coming back and they have been the bulwarks. They have shown that women can get sober. Women can get past the, maybe the additional shame of being a woman sexaholic, which I think is real. And um, they understood that, They have nothing, there's absolutely no difference between what they're feeling and what we're feeling, but it's harder even to get honest about this because of societal pressures and, and other things, labels that we put. You know, in some cultures, it's kind of cool to be a sexaholic if you're a man, but it is never, it's not cool in any culture to be a sexaholic as a woman. And uh, that's an outside issue, but it's still, there are all sorts of, things, you know, uh, prejudices and, and preconceived notions that we have coming in. And uh, I love what Claire said about how she's been here. She came in 19 years ago and she stuck it, stuck it out. She was often the only one around. This is a real thing. I bet you every one of you has experienced it, uh, women at some level. And they stuck it out and they, like we're following Roy's sobriety, we're also following theirs. And, you know, Sylvia, in her, at her age, in, in, her, in her health, in her state of health, she still gets to the, the international conventions. It's absolutely amazing that she still wants to be there. She has found fellowship there. She comes with her husband, who is a member of Essanon. And this is her family. This is my family. I have a family. I know that they're my blood relatives. I love them all dearly. I've reconciled with all of them, my siblings and everyone else. But they don't know my story like you know. And maybe they never will. Maybe they'll know after I pass away. But you know me. And there is a place in this world where somebody knows me completely. And if you don't know a certain detail, it's only because we haven't gotten around to it yet. But not because I'm holding back from you. And this is where I'm known for who I am. I am not known for being a sexaholic. I'm known for being beloved to you. 
because somehow you opened up your heart to me and you let me in. And Roy opened his heart up to his wife. And because she accepted him, she did not rebuke him. She did not reject him. She didn't tell him, I'm out of here. He stuck around and he modeled that. He calls himself a love cripple. More than, more than he called himself a sexaholic, he called himself a love cripple. And that's what we all go through. How do we love when we don't know how? We walked in here in isolation from one another, fearful of each other. And this, this gives us that safe haven where it's like a dress rehearsal for life, where we can actually try to love each other in here. Good, bad, successful, unsuccessful, sometimes resentments come up, whatever, we work through them because we have that commitment to permanency. And we learn that here. And we learn it because people have modeled it before us, like Roy, like Sylvia, like Catherine. So that's my answer to you, Alice. That's the contribution. It's, it's the contribution of long timers who've stuck around long enough to be models for us. They don't look at themselves that way, but they are we're following in their path thank you thank you <laughs> I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of the daily reprieve the best source for experience strength and hope for SA members please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes please show your support by donating to the daily reprieve by going to donate dot thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.